If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, your host, and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. Hey, how are you doing, Andrew? I'm very well, and Merry Good. Christmas to you. It's Christmas um, time, or well, we, we're getting closer to it. It's We're in the season, and of yep. course, uh, stars are all kind of talked about this time of year, a specific Indeed, like that. So, um, you know, it's got an astronomical spin to it, if you like. Now, today we're going to be talking about uh, a great American hero, and that is John Glenn, who recently passed, and uh, it, it came as something of a shock to people, and I don't know why, because he was... He was an elderly man, but they, you know, people like that, you just don't expect them to go. But uh, he has he has passed. But, uh, boy, what a legacy. Uh, we're also going to look at a launch by Japan that's going to be doing a couple of interesting things uh, not far beyond our atmosphere, as well as in, uh, visiting the International Space Station. And uh, they've discovered a dying star. And what's interesting about this one is that uh, in, its, um, in its youth, it was just like ours just like the sun. So we'll find out about that. Uh, first up, Fred, uh, John Glenn, uh, what a great American. Uh, as you say, he uh, he was um, a, a man of um, many talents, I guess. Uh, he was, uh, I guess, always recognised uh, as the person who put America firmly into the space race back in the early 1960s. So his uh, his first claim to fame is that he was the first American to orbit the Earth, uh, and that took place in 1962. Uh, he uh, was launched on board a, a, um, one of the Mercuries, wasn't it? It was. It was. Yes. It was. Uh, it was. Friendship Seven was the name of the capsule. It was one of the Mercury capsules, the first uh, uh, human uh, spacecraft 
uh, if I can put it that way, the first manned spacecraft, and indeed they all were men, uh, that the Americans used and made. And, and that was a kind of precursor to the, well, later on the Gemini uh, spacecraft in the mid-1960s, and then, of course, Apollo at the end of the 60s. So John Glenn uh, was the first American to, to go into orbit. He actually carried out three orbits of the Earth. Um, his predecessors uh, included Yuri Gagarin, the first human into space. That was in uh, early in 1961. Yuri did one orbit of the Earth. And then two Americans, um, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, they uh, independently were sent on what are called suborbital flights. They went up and came back down again. Mm. But John Glenn was the first American to go into orbit. And, and the reason why that's, you know, one of these things that is worth noting is that uh, to go into orbit actually is a, to put a spacecraft into orbit, let me put it this way, is, is actually a very difficult thing to do because what you have to do is get the velocity and the direction that it's going in exactly right so that it, uh, it circles the Earth at the right altitude at this magical um, 7.8 kilometers per second. That means that as it falls from the sky, uh, it's going so fast that the Earth is also falling away beneath it at exactly the same rate. Mm. So it just keeps on going round. But that's quite a pinpoint thing to do. So that's why John Glenn is is remembered uh, as the you know a, the great astronaut he was because he actually um, was uh, aboard that uh, that that spacecraft. I think I'm right in saying, Andrew, that John Glenn was the last of the Mercury, uh, and there were seven of them Mercury astronauts. Uh, to pass away, I think he, uh, he he was the the sole survivor of the pilots of the of the Mercury missions. Mm. Yeah, they made that uh, fabulous, somewhat tongue in cheek movie about that program uh, called The Right Stuff, but they kind of portrayed it as a pretty gung ho uh, cowboy type of, uh, of 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 thing. But I suppose in in some respects it was the technology of the era and and the capacity to succeed was probably as well, less likely than the capacity to fail because the technology would have uh, been very limited and the danger that those men put themselves in uh, must have been extraordinary yes that's right um it it, it was um you know, when we think of spaceflight now, we think of something that is, generally speaking, pretty safe. But that was not the case then. Mm. These were new experiments. You know, he's basically the fourth person. I think he was the fourth man to go into space. Um, and that is very much pioneering stuff. I suspect, uh, Andrew, that clouded or coloured uh, some of the views that he that John Glenn later in his life was criticised for, because he was not particularly encouraging to women. Uh, to become uh, astronauts. He, he actually believed that women would be at a disadvantage uh, flying in space. Now, of course, that's been long to be false um, mm. and may well be partly due to the, you know, the environment in which he grew up in, uh, in which he grew up, which was all about, as you said, the right stuff and, and the boys club and uh, getting, you know, getting these things done. Uh, we chaps will do it, leave it to us. It's that sort of, uh, I think it was that sort of mentality. Well, I mean, he lived to be 95. So he certainly was brought up in an era where, uh, sadly, women were looked at as inferior and were treated as inferior in many cultures, including countries like the United States and Australia and uh, and many others. Uh, it's only now that that's 
starting to really change, but um, we've still got a long way to go. But they're, they're certainly putting women into space. And we, we talked recently about one woman who's going to break records um, with her third trip, I think, to the International that's Space right. Station. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's some amazing stuff happening. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's right. Uh, John Glenn, of course, um, made history again more recently by getting to go up there again as the oldest man in space. So <laughs> he's got two titles, the first yeah. American to orbit the planet and the oldest man in space. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, the age of 77. So mm. um, just to fill in the gap in his life, he um, he basically... Politics. He became, yes, he became a politician. He was the senator yeah. for Ohio. Uh, uh, for about, um, I think it's almost 25 years. Um, so 20, 1974 uh, was when he became a senator. Uh, I think it was 1999 when he retired. Might have been 1998. Uh, it was certainly in 19... 98 that he returned to space 16th of january 1998 um uh, the announcement was made that uh, john glenn would be part of the crew of sts 95 that was one of the space shuttle missions sts being the space transportation uh, system and in fact uh, a bit later in 1998 he he um he flew uh, again um on that uh, on that mission uh, really extraordinary stuff um, uh, the remarkable achievement. He, he, he there's a suspicion that um, you know he'd sort of lent on high people in high places in NASA to say I'd love to go into space again, and so um, that might be the case. But what they did was they used John Glenn as a as a as a guinea pig in a, in a way for studying you know um, how um, a, a rather more elderly body would react to the the weightlessness of space and and things of that sort. So, I imagine an elderly body would welcome it. <laughs> I think that's right, yeah. Because the gravity of Earth can be rather taxing on those old bones, I imagine. Indeed. Because he's, he's also um, uh, not so well known for another great achievement, Fred. Uh, the... <laughs> and I'm, I'm, and you're not, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but the introduction of Space Nuts includes the great line by John Glenn, zero G and I feel fine. I feel fine. That's correct. Yeah. Indeed, it does. That's right. Yes, mm. he, he was well quoted for that. I thought you were going to refer to something um, that uh, was actually one of the aspects of his, uh, of his flight, his first uh, space flight, that three orbit flight, because the, the, the population of uh, Perth in, in Western Australia they lit up their city with street That's lights right. and uh, house lights and car headlights and everything to sort of um, act as a kind of greeting for this lone astronaut passing over yeah. their heads. And apparently he thought very fondly of Perth ever after that. And uh, I suspect this, um, you know, it was a question of, of two sets of people, John Glenn there up on his own uh, a few hundred kilometres above the Earth's surface, uh, being being sort of uh, having a um, you know a, a kind of a, something in common with a city that is uh, certainly in 1962 was very remote it was a long way from anywhere and in particular well, a long way from I think Seaborn. still geographically Perth is considered the most remote city in the world I'm not surprised to hear it mm. it's also mm. one of the nicest <laughs> it is a lovely place to visit yeah. if anyone ever gets a chance it is just a beautiful city yeah. and beautiful people yep um, Fred, we've got to move on, but uh, the late, great John, well-named middle name, Herschel. Herschel Glenn, Glenn that's right. Yeah, <laughs> what a lovely name and a lovely man, and he'll be greatly missed, but uh, his contribution to the space race will never be forgotten and was certainly significant. 
You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to focus on Japan, which is uh, fast emerging as another superpower in uh, in the space race. We call it the space race. I think the race has been won and run and done and is all over. It's just become normal now, and there's just more and more countries getting involved. So we shouldn't be surprised these days with the likes of Japan and China and India, as well as the United States and Russia and whoever else getting involved in in space and and flying their own missions. And that's what's happening here with Japan. Uh, They're launching a cargo ship, but this is no ordinary cargo ship. (laughs) No, that's correct. Um, uh, Andrew, of course, um, uh, Japan is one of the participants in the International Space Station. Mm. So the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, is is a very well-established and uh, very, very proficient space agency, one of the, the great names in space uh, around the world. And what, um, what they are doing with this uh, cargo ship is trying out some technologies that might help with the really increasingly dire situation regarding space junk in orbit around the Earth. Um, so uh, just to recap on the ship itself it's basically uh, a fairly routine launch of a cargo ship to take supplies to the international space station and to the, the crew up there um it uh, i think has uh, um you know normal normal stuff on board that uh, that um uh, astronauts need it's got drinking water and all kinds of things like Toilet that paper. Uh, morning paper, all that, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, so that's that's its 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 job. But uh, what the Japanese have done is looked uh, again at this whole pretty depressing issue of space junk. The fact that in the more than fifty years of uh, of human space exploration, uh, we've basically polluted the the space above above uh, the Earth's surface. With something like 20,000 bits of space debris which are tracked, these range in size from something the size of a marble to uh, defunct, defunct rocket bodies and, and one out-of-control satellite. It's actually a, a, a European environmental satellite, which is something like 11 metres long. Uh, that's out of control. That's definitely uh, space junk because it's not able to be moved at all. Mm. Um, I mean, it's moving in its orbit, but you can't move it, it with respect to other spacecraft. Um, in the same orbit. So um, there's a lot of smaller debris as well. There are probably millions of bits of debris which are smaller than the size of a marble. So the problem is that the, the, the bigger pieces of junk are the ones that could go on to pollute the uh, orbital space even more because if they collide with each other, especially the out-of-control ones, then what you've got is um, instead of one big bit of space junk, you've got hundreds, um, sometimes tens of thousands of bits of debris, the smashed up bits of these uh, of these defunct spacecraft. And so um, the idea is to test technologies, and um, actually the Europeans have been doing this as well, that might be used to bring a spacecraft down at the end of its life, to essentially decelerate it in its orbit so it starts falling in towards the Earth's upper atmosphere, where it burns up harmlessly uh, and no longer poses a problem. So there are a number of ways of trying to do this, um, including things like, uh, you know, like mechanical arms or something like that that might grab a spacecraft and push it into a different orbit or or a solar sail, which is something you could attach to a spacecraft that would allow the light of the sun to act as a kind of sideways propellant to 
to bring it down. Weren't they uh, talking but, uh, about uh, doing some tests up there recently and they were going to test like a harpoon or something like that? Yes, that's right. Exactly. There was a mm. um, uh, test of a harpoon system, uh, which I think are, are also still ongoing. But the Japanese one is, is slightly more subtle. Um, the idea is that if you can attach uh, a sort of net, a long um, but reasonably wide net, and by long I mean in, in probably in, in eventually a couple of kilometres long, um, and maybe a few metres wide, made of metal. So you make it of um, aluminium and stainless steel kind of woven together. What you've got is something that responds to the Earth's magnetic field as it's passing through it and becomes... Uh, sort of uh, electrified because the anything passing through a magnetic field conducts electricity. And that acts as a kind of braking influence on the spacecraft. So this tether, uh, this net actually slows down the spacecraft mm. uh, to the extent that it then plummets down into the atmosphere and is harmlessly burned up. So this particular cargo ship, um, whose name I don't think I can pronounce in <laughs> Japanese, uh, but it means stork. The, the name is the stork. I think it is uh, Kunotori uh, in Japanese, but I'm probably mispronouncing that. Uh, but it's it's a stork. Uh, so the stork spacecraft carries one of these um, nets on board, which will be deployed when it's finished its uh, re restocking of the International Space Station. That will be, be deployed, and of course its orbit will then be tracked to see whether it's having the desired effect, to see whether this tether is actually slowing the spacecraft down uh, with the hope of, of bringing it down harmlessly. And what I really like about this story is that the net was made by a, a 106-year-old company that makes fishing nets <laughs> in Japan. That's uh, so fabulous. Very nice. Stuff. Well, you know, you've got to go to the experts whenever you need to do anything up there. That's so right. want to right. go to the people who've been making nets for hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fabulous. That's, I like that. Now, uh, as far as this is concerned, because space junk is a huge problem we've talked about before, but um, in terms of uh, getting into space, you mentioned earlier that it's uh, 7.8 kilometres per second to get out of the atmosphere. Uh, orbit is, base, is fundamentally a, a continuous fall, but because of the shape of the Earth, the fall means you're always maintaining the same distance from the surface of the planet. Exactly um, so. That's so right. to actually fall back into orbit, you have to slow down. Yeah, that's exactly what what happens. Yeah. So so if you um, you know if you if you're in that circular orbit, a um, few hundred kilometres above the Earth, if you speed up, what happens is you elongate the orbit. You actually you you, you turn it into an ellipse. Right. Uh, but if you slow down, you, you turn it into a, an ellipse, but that ellipse also intersects with the surface of the Earth, and that's what brings it down into the atmosphere. So it, it actually is coming down. Yeah. Um, the, that velocity, it's not the velocity you don't need it to get above the atmosphere. That's, you need the height to do that. So you get a couple of hundred kilometres up, and you're effectively above the atmosphere. But the important thing when you launch a spacecraft is to give it that horizontal uh, impulse that uh, gives it that very large horizontal speed of uh, 7.8 kilometres per second. Fascinating. All right, we'll watch the net with interest, the stalk, yeah. and uh, <laughs> hopefully it will it will do the trick. They've got to find something. They, they really need to clean up out there. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Dr. Fred Watson. What a matchup! And what a team, Mike! MetroPCS and the iPhone SE for $0 on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Oh, impressive. 
Play with the best. Switch to MetroPCS and get a 32-gig iPhone SE for $0. MetroPCS. Coverage not available in some areas, plus sales tax and $10 activation fee. Claim based on talk and text. Not valid for active numbers currently on our T-Mobile network or active on MetroPCS in the past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to look at a star which, when it was young and, you know, full of vigor, uh, was pretty much exactly like the sun that we rely on in our own solar system today. Uh, what's happening to this star, though, is that it's doing what our star will ultimately do in we, what we hope is a very, very long time from now. It's dying, and it also has a planet. So this is all very interesting in terms of what might happen to us one day, I'm assuming. Uh, that's correct. Um, uh, exactly as you said, this uh, this star is a, um, almost a perfect twin of our of our own sun, or it, it, if you read if you wind it backwards by five billion years, it would have been a perfect twin of our sun. So we know um, pretty well the behavior of stars as, as they get um, uh, more mature in their life cycles. And in particular, stars like the sun, uh, eventually they run out of hydrogen fuel. It's the hydrogen fuel that uh, powers the sun at the moment. And the, the sun's just this giant balancing act between the radiation uh, that the, um, the hydrogen burning produces and the force of gravity, which wants to overcome that radiation. So these two things, the gravity and the radiation pressure, are well balanced. But once the hydrogen fuel dies, then the, the core of the star collapses, but it sheds off its outer, its outer envelope. Um, this collapses, uh, in, in the case of massive stars, it can be very dramatic and it is what we call a supernova explosion. But the sun's far more well-behaved than that and will shed its outer layers very gradually. And the reason why this distant star is of interest is that's exactly what it's doing. It's at this stage in its evolution where it is becoming a red giant star. It's shedding its outer layers. It's expanded to be very, very large. Um, in the case of the sun, it will probably... Uh, expand to be a size that will incorporate the Earth in its orbit within the Sun. Um, this star has already done that and is now puff puffing off its, its outer layers. Mm. star is called L2 Puppis, P-U-P-P-I-S. That means it uh, is in the constellation of Puppis the Poop. Uh, the Poop is the uh, after deck of the ship, Argo Navis, and that is one of the Southern Hemisphere constellations that we are very familiar with uh, here in Australia. So L2 Puppis, uh, a star once like the sun, but now like the sun, will be in about five billion years' time. And it's been observed from a number of telescopes, actually, in, down in Chile, um, one of which is a very interesting one. It's something called ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimetre Array. It's at a height of almost 5,000 metres uh, in Chile, in the northern part of the country, high Atacama. Um, I was there, actually, late last year. Uh, to visit um, Alma. Uh, the nearest town is San Pedro de Atacama, which itself is about three and a half thousand metres. Uh, but then um, you've got a fair climb up to something like 5,000. 5, I find it very hard to breathe at those altitudes. I was about to say, how did your lungs cope? Yeah, quite glad to, um, quite glad to get back down again. Mm. So that, that um, telescope is looking at um, basically the radio waves that come from this uh, evolved star, and they've actually managed to make a map. Uh, and what they have discovered is um, there is an object which looks like um, a planet in orbit around L2 Puppis, uh, a, a world that is 
perhaps going through the same kind of death throes that our Earth will when it's being swallowed up by a red, the red giant star that used to be the sun. Um, the planet around L2 Puppis is, is about twice as far from the star as we are from the sun. Uh, and so it, it's showing up fairly clearly uh, in, the, um, in the ALMA data. And I think it gives astronomers the chance of observing what kind of happens to, uh, to a planet when its star turns into a red giant. Um, it's a ringside seat almost of the process that our Earth will inevitably go through, albeit, as I said, in about five billion years. So there's not really any immediate problem here. Uh, we might want to leave shortly before all that happens. but um, If but we still moment. exist. I keep throwing that disclaimer in, but, you know, yeah. human might, humanity yeah. has got this incredible capacity to destroy itself, unfortunately, and who knows where we'll be in 20,000 years, let alone yes, 5 billion. Right. Or, of course, we might even have evolved into pure energy by then. Well, who um, knows? Yeah, who and, knows? And it's just that's just too long a time frame to consider what, yeah. humanity would be well, human it, actually be. it's it's the age of the earth in the future mm. so the the solar system is about 4.6 billion years old as is the sun and uh, if you imagine the age of the earth but projected into the future that's the time we're talking about for this red giant phase well i, I would imagine that uh, in the next several thousand years and let's assume for a moment that humanity deals with all its problems and actually starts doing what it does best and that is exploring beyond the known world and finding other worlds we did it through sailing ships in the 14 15 16 1700s uh, and then now we're starting to sort of eke our way into space i think ultimately we're going to start occupying some places who knows we may achieve some form of uh, capacity to create environments that are sustainable for human life on Mars or maybe some of the smaller moons in the outer systems. Uh, and if if we solve some of the very big mathematical problems in terms of space travel, we may even be able to move to other solar systems. Um, who knows? But it, it, I, we're not going to stand still. We've proven that human, humans just don't. No, we do. Uh, and so ultimately we're going to, we're going to live beyond this Earth. Mm. Do you think so? I think we probably will. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, um, I, I have reservations about things like colonising Mars, but I do believe that we have to become a spacefaring species. Uh, I think we've got to fix our problems up here on Earth before we try and colonise anywhere else. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Who knows where? Uh, you know, this length of time in the future, anything could have happened. Yes. Well, I'm reading a book at the moment which is set in the far distant future when humans have overcome some of their problems and, and moved out into the solar system and basically occupy everything. Um, you know, they're living in bubbles on some planets and moons. They've terraformed others. You know, it's really fascinating. Um, but the problem that's been created as a result of that is now you've got planet versus planet. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I won't say that that's not going to happen to the future. Seriously, uh, you're, going, you're going to get that kind of rivalry, I imagine, and, and who knows where that could lead. Intergalactic war, perhaps, I don't know. Uh, we certainly like doing it in science fiction, but science fiction has proven time and time again that it's not a big leap to reality, is it? No, that's right. That's correct. Yeah, Especially mm. um, with such a fractious 
bunches the human race. Yes. Yeah. Um, for all our faults, we are quite amazing creatures when it comes to some of the things we've achieved. I mean, you just look at how recent the development of flight was, and now look what we can do. Yeah, it's, that's it's, right taken less than 200 years, really. Absolutely. Just fascinating. Fred, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you again. And we will, um, I'm sure, engage in more flights of fancy through the solar system and elsewhere a bit later on. All right. We'll catch up with you mighty soon. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Send us your questions or just your observations or, um, you know, if there's something you think we ought to talk about, uh, make a suggestion. We'd certainly uh, uh, welcome that. And uh, we hope to catch you next time on Space, Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.